welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal on the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Amira, and today on Streams of Progress, Matt and I are joined by Philip Ahoshi, the founder of Magnet. During our discussion, we covered his insights into the region startup ecosystem and how the Magnet platform has evolved over the last few years. So join us as we dive into the conversation. So hey everyone, this is Matt, and I am uh, glad to be here with our guest, Philip Bahashi, who is the founder of Magnet. Welcome, Philip. Good morning. Good afternoon, in fact. <laughs> glad to have you here with us. And I'm also here with my co-founder and co-host of Streams of Progress, uh, Murad. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> awesome. So we'll have a three-way conversation here today. So we're going to you know, get into exactly what Magnet is, what your vision is for the future, and how you're impacting the ecosystem here of startups. But I want to know a little bit more about your background and your history. So if we could start you know, sure. start there. So uh, I'm originally Iraqi. Both my parents are Iraqi, but I was um, brought up in the UK, hence the very British accent. Um, I went to all of the schooling based in London, um, went to university in London, um, graduated, went into my first job, which was uh, Oliver Wyman. The fascinating time in London back in the day where, especially at LSE, everybody was going into banking and I decided to take a different route. I was more interested in the business side of uh, banking. So I joined Mercer Oliver Wyman back in the day, which was a financial services consulting firm. And then from that, it got acquired into Oliver Wyman, uh, which is the company that I ended up joining. And that was in 2007, which was at the peak of the pre-crash, where we were the largest intake of uh, graduates. And what was funny at the time was that it was very difficult to get on projects in the UK. So the first project that I actually went on was in Kuwait. And that was my journey to the Middle East. Because despite being Arab, I'd never actually been to the Middle East. I was brought up in the UK and, and traveled extensively in Europe, but I'd never been to the Middle East. So that was my first foray here. And having come here as a typical consultant, I had I traveled every weekend. And that's where I slowly discovered the region. I traveled to Dubai, I traveled to Beirut, I traveled to Jordan. And that's where I kind of discovered what was the Middle East. And at the time, it's like, why would you go back to London where it's raining and cold when you could live somewhere that was sunny and, and enjoyable? So I was given the opportunity to transfer to the Dubai office, spent another two years out of the Dubai office as the first employee for their financial services office, then moved to Barclays, where I was working for the CEO of Barclays uh, Middle East for Wealth, um, doing strategy as his chief of staff. Did that for two and a half years um, and then decided to go on and do my MBA. Uh, I went to INSEAD, so I spent six months in Fontainebleau, six months in Singapore. Amazing experience, great connections, the, the usual MBA experience um, where, I, where I really traveled a lot of the time to, to get as much experience as possible. Um, came back to Dubai, ended up working in my family business um, for a period of time, but very quickly realized that Despite that being something that I wanted to do, I realized it wasn't necessarily something that I was either well-suited to or enjoyed doing, and very quickly moved into entrepreneurship, which was when I began with Magnet. I just want to go back. You said chief of staff. I noticed lately in the startup world, yeah. in terms of CEOs, a lot of them do have a chief of staff, like Elon Musk has a chief of staff. Yeah. So what 
is the role of a chief of staff? You know what? It's a really great question. And I had this exact conversation with two founders last week that were saying, we need this role. We don't know what it's called. So basically, the way that I did it was that the way that I saw it was that the, the, the CEO is the CEO of the company. But there's a lot to do and he can't do everything. So your admin assistant will support you with what your admin is. But there's the person in between that gets stuff done. So basically, to the extent whereby he would be like, jump, you're like, how high? And you kind of get it done. So day to day, we would meet every week and set what the agenda was. And then he would say, fine, by the end of the week, X, Y, Z needs to get done. Go forth and speak to all the relevant people, the lieutenants. And it was always C-level suite. Like, you need to go and speak to the CFO, the CTO, the head of marketing, the head of sales, etc. Gather data, gather all the information, gather what needs to get done. And then you report back at the end of the week. And basically, you act as the layer between the CEO and uh, the management level and then report back to him. And of course, he has his own conversations, but you're acting as the enforcer. And ultimately, one thing that I always admired and respected was he said, look, you are me. So if somebody gives you pushback, you're telling them it's, it's not you, Philip, which for me was a bit of a challenge. I was 26, 27 at the time. Um, and he goes, no, no, I'm, you, you are acting on my behalf. And if there's an issue, let them escalate it. But let them know that you've had to escalate it over me. And that was a very empowering position. So in a startup where a CEO is literally running around doing hundreds of things, this person basically acts as the go-between between what you're trying to do as the leader of the company to the rest of the management that can kind of help oil the wheels and keep things running on a regular basis. And there's a very high MI role, so gathering data, reports, presentations, dashboards, KPIs, um, just to make sure that you're keeping on top of things. So you're kind of like the execution aspect of the CEO. Correct. And while you were in that role, in a way you were acting as a startup? I mean, you were kind of like doing all the work that we see what founders tend to do nowadays. So I was learning a lot. So I, what was fascinating about my journey was that when I did consulting, which I really enjoyed, you're, you're coming up with strategy all the time. So we did multiple projects for different type of clients and, and you do presentations and board presentations and you, you tell them what's good, what's bad, what needs to be fixed, but you would never be really involved with the implementation of it. Because you do this, I mean, the large strategic firms come in to provide the strategy. The industry's evolved now that they get more involved with the implementation. But often you just did the strategic side of things. Then when I flipped it and was in-house, actually the strategy side spent was, was a lot shorter period. And you were then going on about the implementation. It wasn't about how good the presentation was. It's what can you get done. So there you had a completely different skill set, which was a lot more people related because you needed to get the best out of the people that were implementing what you were doing. And to the extent where you were learning how to hustle, um, it was an excellent exercise. And I was reading an interview recently of uh, a famous founder here in the region, and he said one of the most important skill sets you get from consulting, and I would then say uh, the chief of staff, is learning how to look good on presentations. Because a lot of the work that you're doing is pitching, whether it's to investors, whether it's to clients, whether it's to users, whether it's through social media, it's presenting the message um, confidently and clearly. And that's something that I learned externally in consulting and then internally um, as messages to the staff and messaging to the, the, the entourage um, internally through the chief of staff role. And what was the catalyst? You finished working at Barclays Wealth, you went to get your MBA after that, and you came back and decided 
the found magnet? So during the M, people, I'll give you an anecdote. During everyone says, did the MBA help you to become an entrepreneur? And I always say, not necessarily. I don't think you need an MBA to be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are people that have a hustle and a desire to try and push through things and succeed. And an MBA is absolutely not required. Having said that, if you are someone that has the hustle, an MBA can help you better understand the pieces of the jigsaw. And I'm really only learning that now. So you, you can understand what marketing is, what an audit is, what accounting is, how to do a business strategy, how to do leadership through OB or the different pieces of the jigsaw. But what actually was the catalyst for Magnet was... I did a lot of entrepreneurial classes and I did what is now actually big here in the region, a startup boot camp, which was a weekend exercise where at the beginning of the weekend you come up with an idea and you spend three days developing it with a team of people to then pitch to angels or investors at the end of it. And during that exercise, it was really a crash course in understanding what are the different pieces of what a startup is? And one of the things that I found quite fascinating was we were asked to reach out to the alumni community at INSEAD to validate your idea over the weekend or to get feedback or just to get feelers as to what the product market fit may be. And INSEAD had a platform that was called INSEAD Connect, which is basically all the alumni. And so what I did was you went and at the time, it was an app for wine that was basically you go to a restaurant and it pulls down a menu of what the restaurant has and it already validates what the score is and, and better educates the user. Not quite like taking a picture of the bottle. It was restaurant-based, not bottle-based. And so I went and filtered by wine enthusiasts and entrepreneurs on, on this platform. And I think I sent 30 emails on that Saturday and received one reply. And... And the thing that I found fascinating was you've got an outbound email process, but what if these guys are already interested in entrepreneurship or what it is that you're doing in, why can't they connect with you, the entrepreneur? And another piece of the story was during our strategy class, we did a, um, we did a study on Match.com. Match.com at the time, 2012-13, was the largest dating site globally and the blue ocean strategy around it was all about how a psychometric test of 15 questions 15 pages can find you your perfect match and it was very intrusive and it was really like in depth and this was considered at the time as the blue ocean strategy what i found fascinating was sitting around the room everybody sitting on tinder Tinder doesn't guarantee you anything. It's a swipe life, swipe right. It gets you a match. Whatever you do afterwards is completely left to you. It doesn't charge you for it. And it was that was blue ocean to the extent by what was the simplest way of connecting two individuals based on a concept, in this case, the face. And the first version of Magnet was exactly that, but for startups. The first idea was how can you have a Tinder summary card of an idea with the basic information around the founder, the idea, the concept that could connect an MBA founder to an MBA alumni that may be interested in what it is that you're doing. So instead of you reaching out to the community, the community reaches out to you based on their preference. And that was the original 
idea that spot magnet. So could you tell us then how you define or how do you think about the services magnet offers now? Because you're not a matchmaking no. service, are you? No, so no. So we've, more to we've, it. Had, we've had to pivot quite a bit from sure. where we started. So where we started was that. And then there were several issues around all of that with regards to product market fit, geographical fit. Uh, I, I started with a niche, but then I realized it was very difficult to speak to Stanford, Harvard, uh, INSEAD from Dubai. And so then we pivoted very quickly to the MENA region. And one of the things that we've focused on heavily since is the transparency and the access to data. We're a data-driven platform around data access and data analytics. So we've just launched our new site uh, it'll probably get launched next week by the time this comes out and the focus of the site is access to startup data and information that can allow for data-driven investment decision making we're not an investment platform but we can provide the data and the research around that information so the new site is very heavily focused on Information on startups, information on investors for LPs that are interested to understand the behavior of VCs here in the region, access to data analytics and data research that we create, um, and information on the startup ecosystem itself. And that's what Magnet's trying to become, the reference point for data and data analytics here in the region for startups. And your business model is you provide that for a fee, or how, how does it work? Correct. So we've launched a, a subscription model to the platform where you can get access to all of the features and the data on the platform. We have certain nuances, so we, we try to learn from different pieces. And we have an application process embedded on the platform, which is actually free. So if you're a VC, if you're a corporate, if you're a service offering, you can actually allow startups to apply to you using their profiles on Magnet, which allows for deal flow, which will build out through a CMS process in the, in the coming couple of months. And we also support offline through innovation consulting projects and support um, in, that, in that space. But specifically on the online, it's a subscription model. And regarding the transparency you're saying about the deal flow and understanding about startups, where are you, how, or how are you acquiring that data? From the startups. So it's a push and pull exercise. We build relationships with all of the major institutions here in the region and we provide them the platform to showcase what it is that they're doing. But we also speak with the startups to allow them to showcase themselves on the platform and we find external third party sources to gather information on this space. Um, information is scarce here in the region and it's about consolidating it and, and keeping it methodical on the platform for people to be able to access. So it's a bit, a bit of a push and pull. And regarding the analytics, what type of analytics are you offering the LPs or the VCs? So right now, it's the basics. I mean, we're gathering whatever we can find on all these companies. What industry, what country, what location, how many people, how much revenue are they making, um, what stage of development are they, how much funding have they received, how many people are they in the entity. Uh, and that's the basic step number one, so that people can get a breakdown of industry or, or type of company. We actually have a new filter. You can actually put in a keyword search in their descriptor. And you can have all the companies that are relevant. So we kept on getting asked how many AI-focused startups are there or how many health startups are there or agri-tech. You can put that in and all the companies on the Magnet platform that are relevant to that, you can then source. Um, and then it's about being able to connect with them. So unlike other websites, which are just data-driven, you can connect with the founders directly through the platform. You also mentioned that you've started that application aspect because I saw, I think it was a few days ago, I noticed 500 startups was yeah. taking applications directly through Correct. the Magnet platform. Exactly. And so you're planning to build that out? Correct. So we want to allow 
all VCs in the regions to allow for startups to apply to them, but as well, any conference or, or accelerator program, incubator, anybody who has a call to action for which startups can apply to them, we want to support them. And it's a benefit for both sides. Startups in the region continually need to apply to a competition or to an accelerator or to a VC, and they're asking for exactly the same information. They've already got it on the Magnet platform. So the idea is how can we simplify it to allow them to apply to multiple institutions without having to replicate that. For the, the institutions themselves, many of them may want to create their own websites, but it's costly, it's time-consuming, and we'll create their, their, their proprietary landing page on Magnet, which can be embedded on their site. The questions can be tailored based on their needs and requirements. You have the Magnet standard questions, which are probably cover about 50% of what they're looking for. And if they want to ask what time they sleep and, and where their favorite country is for a holiday, they can do that. And then the information can be exported um, for them to be able to do their own analysis. And as the platform develops, we'll find ways of integrating it with their own CMS systems. And what's the larger ambition of, or the vision of Magnet in terms of why are you doing all this? Yeah, I mean, so I think that this is an issue that is uh, can be represented uh, across the region, but also beyond that in emerging markets. There are similar issues that you can find in other emerging markets. What we find here is that the infrastructure offline is not necessarily strong enough and therefore needs to be complemented with an online proposition. And having a hub where startups that we say are founders in isolation that don't know how to connect to uh, a startup or a VC or interconnect between themselves with service providers, that's what we're trying to create as a proposition to, for them to be able to support. In many of the US or European well-developed markets, you can go down the street and go to a WeWork or go and speak to different people in a coffee shop and they're well-versed in this. Here in the region, we're saying that these guys are isolated and how we can support them online. So with this large and growing data set that you have that you're building, um, clearly you're, you'll be able to see trends in the entire ecosystem and the space of startups. Um, what are some of those trends that you've seen recently in the last six to 12 months? I think more interestingly is what's happened in the last couple of years. So as a nascent and very early ecosystem, the, the, the focus has predominantly been on e-commerce and what I like to say logistics because many of the e-commerce companies are effectively doing logistics, solving for the home delivery or the point-to-point -point delivery um, while providing choice at the same time. So that was the first kind of phase that we've seen in terms of the rush of startups. It's a great business and we've seen the success stories of Amazon coming uh, souk out of that. Um, I think now what we're beginning to see is a bit more awareness of what the challenges are for entrepreneurs and how to capture investment. And for that, you really need to understand what is it the VCs are looking to invest in. Beyond just the team and solving for a product problem, it's a large market. So then it becomes a question of what are scalable and large markets for which VCs are interested in investing into. And that's where you begin to see what we've seen is the current interest in fintech. Fintech across the region, well, financial service friction across the region is a major pain point, um, especially when you have what is one of the biggest challenges here in the region, multiple jurisdictions, multiple legislations, multiple legal frameworks. How can you make it easier? 
easier to solve for that. So that problem was being solved for in terms of transport with regards to logistics and e-commerce. Now we're being, now we're seeing this rush towards fintech because it's an identifiable product across multiple jurisdictions. Um, and I think that's the current trend in terms of industry as well as food. And food can be logistics as well because food is the delivery, but it's also the access to that. What will come in the future, we'll need to see. But at the moment, that's the trend. It seems to me, so fintech is finance, everybody's money, and then food, everybody's got to feed themselves. These are universal needs is basically exactly. what I'm looking at. With a large market. With a very large market. So I'm thinking, what about biotech or health tech You know, as, as the next, the third wave after this? Yeah, well, those things require a lot of research and development, and they need an understanding of the product. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist here, but the other concepts are much easier to replicate and solve for. So when we did our research report and it comes out that um, 35% come from consulting and banking, those are identifiable problems because those are the things that they've been solving for. Um, In the other industries, in the absence of what is huge amounts of investment in research and development, you need individuals ready to give up what it is that they're doing to then pursue um, projects in the startup field of innovation to be able to make that successful. And We're beginning to see that. I think we've seen a lot of uh, innovation in solar power, renewable energy. You're in a perfect part of the world where there is an interest from a government perspective as well as from uh, environmental perspective on how to solve for those issues. But they need to be matched with the research and development to be able to make that successful. And I think that is probably going to be the third wave, but it needs to be addressed by funding that is able to not just solve for a problem that is a payment or a process issue. It needs to appreciate that there's going to be a huge amount of investment in the research for that to be successful. Uh, how much of the the fintech trend that you're talking about, how much of it do you think weighs in on the buzzword aspect of it? Because now you hear crypto, you hear blockchain, and that get, that's also lumped into the same yeah. fintech. In Dubai, we have, you know, the IFC set up the fintech hive. So they're actually trying to incubate or accelerate fintech startups. But on the other side, we see a lot of these smaller startups almost trying to replicate the same solution another startup or another fintech startup has yeah. done. So how much of that do you notice is maybe a buzzword of the trend or is the reality of what's coming through it? I think there's a bit of both, but I actually think that in the fintech space, the larger, more successful uh, startups to date have been trying to solve for major pain points, which is payment processes, um, which is remittance, which is transfers. Um, Those are the ones that have predominantly seen success. While you're beginning to see micro lending, you're beginning to see micro investments, online portfolio investments. And yes, you've got your blockchain and you do have your crypto. um, But the ones that have proven to be more successful have been in the more traditional fintech space. Now, The buzz is great. Awareness is great. I I don't think there's anything wrong with that because it brings investors, it brings awareness, people get interested. Whether they will prove to be successful is the ultimate litmus test, which time will only tell. Um, So I don't think that it's a bad thing to say that there's a lot of PR and buzz, but it needs to be balanced against what is actually a fundamental business that is going to be successful and achieve scale in in a fragmented market. To the second point of many companies doing the same thing, I think you see a lot of that across the region. And that's not necessarily a negative in itself, because I think where they start up will have nuances to what makes them a successful business. But actually what 
one of the trends that I will foresee in the next couple of years is that there will be a lot of M&A activity. There will become dominant players that will buy out smaller players in individual countries. There will be consolidation because if we go back to the point of what will make an investable startup successful, it's the startup that has mass scale and the ability to get into multiple markets. When you do have a dominant player that can then acquire smaller companies that are doing something similar in geographies that they haven't necessarily entered, that's a trend that I believe will continue to grow, which is beneficial for the startups themselves and for the investors that are looking to then look for an exit for a future um, yeah, a future exit. And what do you feel as a challenge startups face, specifically in the UAE startup ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is something that is becoming more widespread is that uh, I was at a meeting recently where we were the Arab innovators as part of the World Government Summit. And if you ask 10 entrepreneurs, I believe that nine out of 10 of them will say that bureaucracy is the largest impediment to growth of their startup. And I think the governments are well aware of this and that there's a lot that's being done to try and address this. But where many people say it's difficult to raise funding and it's difficult to acquire talent, many of the reasons for why getting funding and acquiring talent exists because of the bureaucratic nature of being able to set up and to get money and licensings and the lack of clarity around that. And that's something that is being addressed. I'm aware of that because I've had those conversations, but unfortunately that can't happen over time and that takes time to change. Um, but that is probably the largest impediment at the moment. And the second thing is, how can you have a large enough market for a startup to be successful? Even within the UAE, you can be successful in Dubai, for example, but you still need to go and see how you can scale into the other Emirates. And is the market the same as Dubai for your product? Or do you need to look elsewhere? And what is the cost of being able to do that across multiple jurisdictions and multiple markets to create a large enough scalable product? We've heard the same sentiment from a lot of the startup founders that we've spoken to in terms of the challenges of starting a new business, the cost, you know, the amount of paperwork that needs to be done. I've heard a contrary viewpoint here is that you know, that filters out the people who don't have it in them yeah. to really pursue it, Absolutely. To, to, to see it through to the end. So maybe it's a good thing. I, so, I don't know. What, what so, are your so the flip side of that is that that is where the opportunity lies and one needs to identify that. So you can take Magnet as an example. I don't think you need another startup website if you were in the US or if you were in the UK. I, I was also making the point that the offline is so strong that you wouldn't need to complement it. But herein lies the opportunity here. And we know that even in Saudi Arabia or if you go to Lebanon, there is even localized websites similar to Magnet that are trying to service individual countries or individual government entities. But the question becomes... How can you solve for the region as a whole and create a product that then can be exported to emerging markets and other geographies? And so herein lies the opportunities. But let's be clear, it's not very easy to do that. And you need the hustle in you to be able to achieve that. Mm -hmm. So I don't disagree with you at all. And what do you think about startups? You know, is it Middle East for the Middle East or is it Middle East for the world? If you ask me as Philip, um, not Magnet, but Philip, you have to have a vision to be global, if not like a larger region. You can't be just the Middle East for the Middle East. It's one of those things where if you aim for the sky, you reach the trees. If you reach, aim for the trees, you end on the floor. So I'm not saying that all of you shouldn't be focused on the region. But what I always say, and I say this at other, when, I, when you're speaking to students, for instance, you say, look, you have the perfect testing ground where you are, whether it's the UAE or Kuwait if you're doing food tech or Bahrain if you're doing fintech. 
But your aim must be to create something that is aspirationally bigger if, let me also be clear, there was an interesting distinction that we had at the World Government Summit. There's nothing, there's different words. You've got entrepreneurship, which is basically the catch-all of any type of business. And then underneath that, you have tech or tech-focused businesses. And you can still be an entrepreneur, but do something which is brick and mortar, which can be tech potentially enabled or do something that's purely service. And I think therein lies one of the biggest challenges for the region when it comes to a, a support perspective is that people intermix all of those three kind of words and entities that you're trying to solve for too much, or at least you're not creating necessarily the policy that a, a tech company that is purely online is a very different entity to somebody that's doing something offline and they need different support and services. So, um, that that's a distinction here is how do you define those things? But back to your question for tech VC backed startup entities, they need to have a global, if not regional or multi-region vision to be able to be considered at least successful or achieve a goal for which they can exit. Or even the VCs getting their money back. Absolutely. I think this is something that it's an educational piece. I think many people complain, complain about a lack of capital, but they need to understand why that capital is coming to them. You could get a company that does brick and mortar or does something that's service oriented and have a lead investor, but that person will expect potentially dividends on a regular basis and an income for his investment. But if you go to a VC or even an angel investor who's taking a percentage of your company in exchange for you becoming a growth startup, You need to understand why it is they're pushing you to grow, 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 because for them, their exit is based on a multiple of their investment originally that makes it pay off. Otherwise, you've got fixed deposits and banks here in the region that can give you good income. And hence, everyone complains that real estate is killing the startup. Well, they give you yields that are sufficient and safe, and it's not a tech product that they're not comfortable with. You need to prove to them why they shouldn't be doing that. And the only way of doing that is by creating a product that can scale into multiple jurisdictions and go outside of the region and be extremely successful. And in terms of exits, there's M&A from a larger company yeah. or there's an IPO option. So yeah. what is, what's your view on IPOs here? So look, IPOs anywhere in the world are very difficult. And I, I don't think that like if you started in the Silicon Valley in the early 40s, 50s, that you would be dreaming of IPOs. And I keep on saying that the startup ecosystem here is still relative, is very young. Um, and so, yes, that is an aspiration that many startups should have. But I think that the current trend is that you're seeing international similar companies acquiring companies to get a foothold who have done the dirty work that you've just mentioned that they didn't necessarily want to do in the region. And that, that's fine until you're seeing genuinely innovative products that are unique that are coming out of the region. That concept will continue. But yes, you will begin to see IPOs take place. And there's the large companies now that are in discussions, or at least the media is touting that there's the potential of IPOs. And I think that should be the case. But other than Aramex, which one needs to debate whether that was a startup when it originated, but is very few examples of IPOs of companies that you can define as a startup as such. And yes, I think that the Kareem example is one that they're definitely lining up for. When that happens, whether there's another fundraiser this year uh, and they IPO in the future, time will tell. But 
to be IPO ready requires such scale and growth and capital for the product to be well-defined with multiple diversified streams. I think we're not quite there yet to see multiple of those. But yeah, it would be great to have one or two that can then lead the way for others. When you were talking about M&As and acquisitions, one of our most successful startups was Dubizzle when that got acquired yeah. by OLX. Yeah. And how it was actually interesting in their case where they didn't do a rebranding. When they acquired a startup in Saudi, when they acquired a startup in yeah. Oman, they rebranded to OLX. Yeah. But in Dubai, they had to revert back to the Dubizzle brand name. Yeah. So it's building that capital, building that brand capital. And I think they're all success stories. Any exit is a success story, regardless of like what the deal terms were to the extent whereby there's a journey that's taken place. I mean, you can go and look in the States. Not, not every story is a unicorn that exits. There's, there's, there's exits through M&A that may be not great deals or great deals, but for a founder that started with an idea that then got acquired, then there, there's a success in that. The question becomes that they need to be better deals as we continue to grow and, and the better success stories will, they'll fuel the system. I mean, one of the things that I always say is that the exits and the success stories will fuel the ecosystem. And the more of those that take place, the more capital that gets injected back to the VCs, the more capital goes back to the investors. And there's a story to tell, whether that be to LPs or angel investors to say, look, these success stories are happening and we need to continue to fuel the system to see the growth of these startups and, and, and see how the ecosystem continues to grow from that. In your role as a founder of Magnet, you interact with so many other founders of all these other companies. What are some of the qualities and characteristics that you've seen from these other founders who you really feel, feel are going to make it? You know? Hustle. Hustle. I was actually asked this question and uh, five other people on the stage came up with different words of perseverance and passion and I believe all of them are important but then I said hustle and they all said yes that's it and I'm not trying to compliment myself but there's a nuance to what passion some people were saying you could be over passionate or or passion can like um it cloud you but hustle here is something that I think is required anywhere in the world but especially here because when we go back and we talk about the bureaucracy and you're talking with banks and the regulators and your lawyer and hence I go back to the MBA like how do you deal with these people well you need a little bit of hustle to be able to pick up the phone and speak to them all the time and get through and that's before you've even talked about your product um, so I think that's something that that's key I think one of the things that has begun to show is that having strong founding teams again anywhere in the world but especially here that can help you in the good times uh, in the bad times but also be there for you in the good times that's something that needs to be kind of understood and something that I think especially we were discussing this before telling the stories of successful entrepreneurs you realize serial entrepreneurs here are, or let's put it like this some of the success stories that we talk about are often serial entrepreneurs that people didn't realize. They've done it before. They've learned what was done. They're, they're learning from what's being done and they, they do it again. So many of these people, and you can read books. I mean, Chris Schroeder's book is fascinating to speak about some of the stories and there's more of them that continue to come out, whether it's in newspapers or you go and speak to Eli Habib, who does Ankhami, did multiple startups before he started um, his company. And I think another thing that we're beginning to see a trend is some of the more successful startups avoid the limelight the ones that focus on their product as opposed to the PR and the publicity are the ones that can 
focus, their investment on creating a product market fit are the ones that are proving to be more successful or at least have shown success in what it is that they're doing. And so those traits are, are, are key to being able to at least get through many of the hurdles here in the region. I'm glad that you brought that up at the end because I feel like in terms of the product market fit, because you can hustle 120 kilometers per hour in the wrong direction. Yes. So you, know, you have to do the research in advance to understand what are the needs of your customers? Is there a large enough market to serve them, etc.? Yeah. And being able to, I mean, that, that, that again, it comes with time. I mean, we've pivoted three times as a company and only recently we're beginning to work out where the, where, where the pain point is. So sometimes it's just not easy. The hustle will at least get you to somewhere, but then it's working out whether, whether that's even the, the right uh, product market fit. It comes back to what you said. It's about the hustle and hustle is about actually getting things done. Because yeah. if you were passionate and you believe this is the only way this company can work, yeah. you wouldn't be able to compromise and hustle in a different direction or pivot yeah. As you said, I, I think that's also, I mean, there's a lot of, um, how do I put this ego here in the region and being able to listen to feedback is always my one biggest piece of advice. And I know that you have a question later, but being able to internalize and listen to feedback without the need to continually defend yourself is one of the characteristics I see from successful people here, whereby if you speak to 10 people, you'll get 10 different opinions, but they may be a common thread that comes from some of them. That's what you should be listening to, not all the noise that's necessarily around that. But if you continually need the desire to defend yourself and react, then you're not going to be listening. So I think that's something in terms of people here, some of the more successful ones are very open to listening and adapting to feedback that they're provided with. And speaking of feedback, you yourself... You said you went through the pivot. You actually adjusted the vision of what yeah. Magnet's offering is. Did you have any mentors who provided that feedback? So I had uh, a board of advisors who were instrumental in the growth of Magnet. And I, that's another point that I think that's an undervalued tool here in the region. Being able to find individuals who can complement and also fill gaps in you as a person or as a founding team that you don't necessarily have that can keep fire under your belly. Basically, if you, the way I structured it, which was a bit unique according to the advisors, is we had an agreement that every month we would have a one hour call collectively with all four of them uh, or five of them in the end. And I would still have one hour of their time or two hours of their time separately one-on-one. -on -one. And that one hour a month was not for me to speak, but was for me to give them a very quick update and articulate three challenges that I was facing that month and to listen to them on their experience of how that should be solved for. And they were very instrumental in the shaping of Magnet because it was them who kept on telling me, reinforcing me when... And this was because I was a sole founder. I mean, especially because I was a sole founder. I didn't have that bouncing board. And at the beginning, it was just me. I mean, it was literally me and a developer. And then I discovered that I just needed to hire, even if it was interns who've also been instrumental. But I think in terms of mentors, they have been uh, extremely influential. And as I always said, my father, I mean, you have somebody who's done this multiple times before, somebody who's completely disconnected, doesn't understand anything about tech, but was a businessman or an entrepreneur in his own right. Somebody that you can go to and say, there were many times where he just said, you've got to persevere and perseverance is what it takes or, or, or that hustle and having that third party be able to speak to you and tell you that, nope, just 
hang in there a little bit longer or you need to change direction. There was a point where we completely pivoted the model where we moved towards data. And he said, look, who is it that wants to pay? If the VCs don't want to pay, if the startups don't want to pay, who is it? And work out who that is and then tailor the product to them. Um, so yeah, th those were mentors that were extremely helpful. And these mentors were, you found them here in Dubai or was it from your past? No, they were all in Dubai. I mean, they were, I, I had four to start off with and, and one was another entrepreneur that actually inspired me. She, she was a founder of a company here, Designer24, and she, she inspired me to actually get started with the concept. Um, another one was a, a VC himself, but was able to give me the investor's perspective. Another person had been working in uh, multiple community-based platforms and Uh, supported me in the idea of what it was that we were trying to create. And somebody else was uh, an investor in Silicon Valley, but previously worked at Google and AdMob, who came with a Silicon Valley perspective of what was the difference that was going on there and here. All of whom I met through conferences and pitches and events, who either liked what I was doing because they could understand the pain point, one was going to do it himself, Another was going to invest in something like that themselves, all of whom said, you know what, we can identify with the challenge of what it is that you're doing, and we would like to help see how we can support shape what it is as a proposition. You met them all through networking? All through networking. And you created this mastermind group that monthly you would get them together? and Literally. Yeah, so I wanted to ask... Um There's been a lot of information that you've shared with us here and that the founders, have, I'm sure, have gotten tremendous value from hearing your perspectives. If you could speak directly to them right now, what do you want to tell the founders, the group of founders here in the UAE or startups in general? You know, what, what should they know? I think, look, patience. Um, I, I think patience in general is uh, essential. Um, ask people for feedback. One of the things that we're beginning to see organically take place is founders speak to other founders. I think another challenge across the region, but even in the UAE, is although there is a plethora of accelerators and incubators, co-working spaces, there isn't a lack of these things. The biggest challenge is that they're, they're kind of spread geographically across the, 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 um, the city, and it makes it difficult for people to meet up. But do that, because... Speaking to your friends only takes you so far because they can't quite relate to the struggles of what you're doing or what it is. And they only have so much empathetic capital that they're ready to give up because it's your baby, not theirs. But speaking to other founders, you'll learn hacks. How can you do your SEO better? How should you configure your MailChimp? Or how should you pitch to investors? Or which investors should you be speaking to? There's an invaluable tool of just being able to speak to other people that are going through your journey. Um, but really work out when you start up what it is that you're doing, that question you ask me, is this just a problem for the city you're in? Is it for the country? Is it an identifiable product across the region? Or do I want to take this global and have an aspiration to go big, but use wherever it is that you're starting from um, as a basis to be able to do that? And if you spend more time on creating the perfect product, the capital will come. But if you spend all your time doing competitions and chasing the capital, 
without having the product to justify it. And the other thing is if you can prove sales, nothing is better than proving sales. Sales, then the capital will come afterwards. And when you're building a business, there are so many things that have to be done. My question is, how do you decide between buying a service or hiring somebody to do it versus teaching yourself how to do it yourself and, and, and go through that kind of pain and grind? I think at the beginning, you just have to be able to accept that you're going to have to do a lot of it yourself. But I think you would be very surprised how many people will offer support for free if you are charming enough. So when you need to do um, a logo or when you need to do ask a lawyer for help or the first couple of times you can probably get away with just having someone help you out if you hustle enough to do it. Having said that, there's a way of doing that and there's a way of not doing that. Like you can never demand things from people and being able to nuance it with charm and a free coffee and accept and thanking them like a thank you after meeting somebody that's helped you goes a very long way now there's certain things that if you're not comfortable doing accounting auditing things that are daily requirements or annual requirements for licensing and banking that's part and parcel of the costs of being an entrepreneur here in the region and i think another piece to your to your question previously is accepting it is not cheap it is a lifestyle change. It is something for which you need to have savings for. So before you start embarking on this journey, understand whether this is a commitment that, by the way, is not one year or two years. You have to assume that it's a 10-year journey that you're going on, for which if you manage to exit beforehand successfully is a blessing that will come. If not, it will be a journey that you're undertaking. Because if you don't appreciate and understand that from the get-go then you're even more likely to get disgruntled and stop because it's harder than you anticipated it's not easy but accept that from day one and then kind of work from there if you don't mind i want to ask some personal questions about sure. you we kind of talked about this before the interview that how you don't have breakfast yes so do you have any daily routines you tend to do Another thing entrepreneurs, and I'm sure others can relate to, is that your daily habits change quite fundamentally from a corporate role to a startup role. Your time is fully engrossed 24-7, and uh, recently I've had to find ways of disconnecting from work because otherwise it becomes very consuming. So I found that I used to find it very difficult to wake up in the morning when I was at a corporate job and literally last minute before running to the office would jump in a car and get to work. I now find that I'm, maybe it's just because I'm getting older, I'm up at seven every morning and end up going to the gym in the morning as opposed to the evening because I find that I'm psychologically drained. Whereas when I used to be at a corporate role, I either go at lunch because there was a gym in my building or um, I'd go at the end of the day because it was just a way of relaxing. So I try to methodically go in the morning to get exercise. I have a very weird hack that I've now put my phone in another room when I sleep, um, which is considerably far away so that I don't even have the temptation to get up and get it because that's the only way I can find that I can disconnect uh, when sleeping at night. Otherwise, all it takes is to wake up at two in the morning and whether it's a WhatsApp message, a Facebook tweet, a tweet or, or an email, your evening is then ruined and being able to get enough sleep um, is essential. And I find that, for instance, on a Friday, I'm forcing myself to completely disconnect from the computer so that you have one day to try and switch off. Um, so those are some of the hacks, shall I say, rather than routines that I've kind of begun to implement. 
So Fridays, you do full no digital or just no computer? Just no computer, no emails. No, no, no. So you still get the <laughs> no, notifications? I still, I still get the notifications, but I'm trying not to do any work. Is uh, one day off. Do you have any structure to your regular work days? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm up early or anyway doing my emails, but we all meet in the office by 9.30. Um, we're here until about 6.37. I end up working anyway on my way home or, or taking calls in the evening. Predominantly because you have calls that can come in from Skype um, from anywhere. Um, but what we try to do is little things. So every Sunday we have a brainstorming session for ideas that we want to try and implement from a content perspective. Uh, I'm very structured on KPIs. So we have a KPI board in our office that we track every week, um, on specific key metrics. Um, but above and beyond that, it's based on daily needs and requirements. We have it on our wall. We have every week, what are the key weekly things we want to achieve uh, and the rest are kind of more strategic from a monthly perspective are you at the point where you have your own chief of staff not yet not yet <laughs> if, if i could i would trust me <laughs> i know the value of it but no i don't so what book do you tend to gift to people so i laughed at this because i unfortunately i watch way too much tv and listen to many, too many podcasts that i don't gift enough books but i'm fascinated by biographies so i tend to read a lot of biographies um um, whether I, I have a weird interest in politics, so I've read the Bill Clinton biographies, the Bush, the recently I was reading Hillary Clinton's um, biography, and a lot of football managers. In fact, I've taken a. I'm not going to say it's a gift because I, I haven't given that many book gifts. But what in terms of books that I, I I'm fascinated on, I'm a big football fan, um, Tottenham fan. Not that it's relevant. Actually, I read Pochettino's book, but I've also read Ferguson and Mourinho. And I think that there's a lot to be said um, between the parallels of sport and startups, because to the extent whereby you're nurturing a club or a person to be successful, there's only one Ronaldo, but there's 30 people that play for Man United and there's 20 teams in the Premier League and there's five, ten leagues globally and yet there's billions of people that want to play football. And what are the attributes that you need to bring together for team cohesion, for nurturing talent, for having a vision? I mean, Pochettino, who's the new manager of Tottenham, talks at end about having a philosophy and a vision and a value-driven approach to the club, which then percolates down to the players and the coaching staff and, and the team and the board and etc. So I, I actually find a lot through, not management books, but from other industries, the, the art of management and leadership. There's a common theme. Previously, we we're talking about how startup founders have this history that we usually don't tend to know about. Yeah. And now with these biographies, yeah. they pretty much start from the yeah. beginning of their life to before they made it big, before Correct. why we even know them. What's the story and what were the characteristics that got them from where they were to where they are now? And since you said you don't really read that many books or you just... Not enough, the, not enough, not enough books. So what about the documentaries you were saying? Many things that are in the kind of the political frame I find fascinating. I think there's an inside of me, not that I ever want to go into politics, but I want to get into the strategy of politics. I think being able to understand the hearts and minds is very different to a, uh, a selling a product. It's the same mechanisms, but it's a very different concept. So uh, I recently, not that I'm going to applaud them, but I read, uh, watched the Netflix documentary on Roger Stone. And 
it's fascinating to see again people that come from adversity but when they stick to their mission and their messaging and their points how it is that they look to overcome these adversities through marketing and through brand so anything that kind of like relates to messaging and understanding and things like that i find just generally fascinating so philip what's your uh, wish or dream initiative for dubai if you could have something implemented here um what would it be I think that, I mean, all of the region is trying to push for this entrepreneurial space. And I think that uh, being able to create a cross GCC or pan MENA vision that is above and beyond any specific country is something that will be extremely powerful. And whether that's originated out of here or other countries, it's being able to create that marketplace that basically allows for freedom of goods, freedom of transfer of individuals, freedom of transfer of companies. And, and if that was something that was born out of here, that would be great. But I know that the whole of the region is looking to try and achieve it in their own individual entities, but being able to do that across the region would be extremely powerful. So almost pan-Arab? Pan-Arab, yeah. I mean, we've got a massive market here, 350 million people, um, very high uh, IT software utilization, digital utilization, a problem with youth unemployment that they're trying to all fix for diversification away from oil into new industries, but each of them are trying to do it alone. And how can you create something that is a pan project? Now I can't overcome history and geopolitics, but that would be a wish or a dream is how you could overcome those issues to create something that can then transcend across the region that can then go on and complete. And then you would have innovation. Then you would have products that can go on to compete with the US and China, both of which have massive, India around the corner, massive markets that have single language and, and, and culture and understanding. Here you've got multiple dialect, multiple uh, demographics, multiple purchasing power, uh, and wealth and that that becomes quite the challenge again we go back to how that's the opportunity but to be able to open that up for more companies to be successful across the region that would be a wish or initiative i'm sure you have a tremendous vision for magnet and other things that you want to do but uh, you've already come a long way so what advice would you give yourself you know looking back you know when you were 20 for example what, what would you tell yourself oh my advice would be something different to magnet i think um Create your own destiny and path, which when you're young, it's your human instincts is to follow in your father's footsteps or in your elders' footsteps and in their achievements. And it's, it's, it's very overbearing to see what they've achieved and your wish and desire. And, and much of what you do is in, in, in an attempt to kind of replicate that or, or, or do that. And I think that if I could tell myself again at 20 years, probably to break out away from that much earlier on and try and experiment and, and drive for different things outside of the norm, because eventually you'll come back to that in the future. But not having the weight of that on you at the age of 20 is something that you would try to alleviate and, and, and try and explore more freely. So would you tell yourself to hustle as well? I think I would tell myself to try and do things outside of the norm and, and break free from kind of your, your strict vision of what you believed your life would be. Like you become a banker or you'd go into a family business or you'd stick within that career path and everything was kind of laid up. But if there's other things that you want to try and explore, do them early because then, then you'll learn a lot more from them. Do you think, is that why you went into Oliver Wyman and then Barclays? I mean, Oliver Wyman was already an alternative to banking, but I went to LSE because LSE was, and I'm very happy that I went there, but the path was banking, finance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And would it have been great to try and do something entrepreneurially then or try and do something uh, in a different country then or, or travel to Europe or go and take a gap year and spend it traveling somewhere else? I, I don't know what it is, but I think it would be don't worry so much about what you need to achieve because actually in your 20s, I remember when I took, I'll give you an example. When I did my MBA, although I ended up doing it, I was like, oh, I'm not sure I could do two years or one year. Uh, and I remember it was my boss at the time, who was the CEO of Barclays here. He was telling me, in the grand scheme of things, when you're 60 or 70, what was that one year you took off in your 20s to try something completely different and break out of the norm? And I guess that's part of what it is that I'm trying to say is if there's a different career path, experiment with it early on um, while getting the experience and with whatever it is that you want to do, um, but not feel that that will then set you for the rest of your life, the normal kind of deviate back to what it is that you're meant to do. You were initially saying about your in-seed program and then you had that, uh, like a startup weekend, right? Do you think that kind of changed your trajectory? What 100%. were you planning to do after the MBA? No, I, my plan was to go and join the family business. And that my purpose of doing INSEAD was to prepare me for that. And yet, the more I got into this concept of entrepreneurship and, and what it required and what it needed and, and, and doing something on my own um, was something that I found like liberating. I'm not a creative person, even in Magnet. I mean, it's not, a, it's not the most creative of startups, but being able to strategize and, and develop a vision that is yours that you can look to achieve was extremely liberating. And, uh, and I think that's what spurred me on into starting it up. Also, I didn't have a job, as in I wasn't. It was in the family business, but you, it's very difficult to get out of a banking job that's very well paid to then say, "Hey, what? Give it up and do something on your own." So, did you enter the family business, or are you completely? I did. No, I spent a year in the family business, and then decided after that that it wasn't wasn't for me. So, we're coming here to the uh, top of the hour. I just want to be respectful of your time. Um, are there any uh, last words of wisdom you want to share with our listeners? Anything we haven't covered yet? No, to the extent whereby we're at a we're at an interesting crossroads and inflection point in, in in the startup ecosystem here in the region. I think it's an extremely fascinating time to 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 see what's happening. You have more opportunities, more capital, more initiatives more growth than many of the entrepreneurs who are now successful had when they started five, six, seven, ten years ago. And, and you can speak to the great people like Fadi Rondor and tell you that there was no ecosystem ten years ago. And you can speak to the guys at Souk and none of these things existed. So we're, we're blessed to be in a, a period where there is a lot more support. But I think tamper that with the knowledge that it isn't necessarily easy and that you need to really understand what it is that you want to try and achieve. Do your due diligence find the right team around you to be able to make it successful. Embrace the challenge that we've discussed, that it may be a multi-jurisdiction um, barrier that you're trying to solve for. But if you have the passion, the will, and the financial capability to be able to do it, then embrace it. But understand that it's not a quick fix. The Facebooks of this world are unicorn exceptions and that you need to build something that is truly of value and then the cash and the revenue and the capital will, will flow. But there's no better time to do it, but make sure you've done your thinking before you do it.
And use Magnet, obviously, to, 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 <laughs> to find out how, how to do it. Perfect. That was my next question. So where can listeners go to find more information? So Magnet.com, M-A-G-N-I-T-T, spelt uh, uh, incorrectly to Magnet, specifically because it's hard to get URLs and it's good to have a catchy name. Um, and join the platform. You'll be able to identify and get information on who the investors are, who the startups are. Funnily enough, I keep getting told from entrepreneurs, we don't know who our competition is. They go and they can find out who's doing something similar to them in a different space. Um, you have a full listing of service providers that you can find out, uh, a good lawyer, a good auditor, a good software developing company on the platform, as well as a very engaging news page where you can find all of the latest news and funding and information of what's going on in uh, the ecosystem. And you can follow us on Twitter at magnet underscore Mina and uh, Facebook, Instagram. And we try to keep that all active for you to be able to engage with us and send us feedback on ways that we can support you. So, Philip, thank you so much for being a guest You know, here with us on Streams of Progress. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Love what you guys are doing. Thank you. Great. Thanks. You can check out this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash magnet. That's M-A-G-N-I-T-T. We'd love to connect with you. So follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress. Streams of Progress.